Well, good morning. Good morning. I hope you'll excuse me. I wanted to have a stand for my notes. We don't have one, so I'm going to perch myself on a desk if you don't think that's too rude so I can just see what I'm speaking about. These are three sessions on being disciple-making leaders for disciple-making churches. I'm going to contend to you that leadership at its heart is really not a great deal more than disciple-making, and particularly making disciple-making disciples who replicate themselves. But the three sessions in the track are firstly leaders as disciple-makers this morning, and then tomorrow we're going to think rather more pastorally about our own hearts and the habits that we can helpfully develop for leading and continuing to lead out of a grace-filled center so that we continue to lead out of overflow of what the Lord is doing in our lives rather than out of emptiness. We all know what it's like to run on fumes from time to time, don't we? And it's really not sustainable in the long term. So habits for leading out of a grace-filled center tomorrow. And then we'll think a little bit uh, about how we multiply leaders in our churches uh, of a disciple-making character on Wednesday. The New Horizon introduction this year says, Life has changed, culture has changed, attitudes have changed, yet Jesus came and spoke of an everlasting kingdom. don't think we need any persuasion about the change going on around us, do we? The world is in turmoil. The way our non-Christian contemporaries are expressing their lostness and seeing the world is unrecognisable even from 20 years ago. And biblical New Testament churches were always innovating, always changing, always praying, Lord, what do you have us to do next? Love Acts 13, they were worshipping and fasting when the Lord said, set aside Barnabas and Saul and global missions kicked off from that one church in Antioch. But I bet they were worshipping and fasting, praying, what's next for us, Lord? Because they knew the challenges and opportunities of fresh environments, fresh cultures and fresh hostility. They knew they were in a missionary environment. There was no other environment for them to be in. There was no environment that was not missionary. They had an unchanging message about a Lord and his unshakable kingdom, but their methods and their strategies were flexible. Compare that with many churches in the UK today, and I believe what we see is often very inflexible by comparison. Maybe that's not true in your situation. It is in many. Whether that's because the pastoral needs of Christians have grown uh, to the point where they absorb all the leadership capacity of your church. I think that's normal, where churches grow uh, more rapidly numerically than they grow leader capacity. Mm. Then it gets squeezed and squeezed and squeezed, doesn't it, until you're taking up all your time just being a chaplain for Christians and addressing the pastoral needs of Christians. Or whether it's for some reason all your evangelists have left the church and gone elsewhere into parachurch ministries, perhaps. That's a very common pattern today. For a thousand and one other reasons, churches plateau and individuals plateau. And when you plateau, you get change resistant very quickly because people join your church because they like it exactly as it is now, possibly as their escape from a changing world, and not because they are joining in a disciple-making vision of what you think the Lord wants you to be like in five or ten years' time. And as leaders, when we find we have nothing left in the tank... When we find we are running on fumes because it's grown beyond our capacity to keep up with the demands, then there's nothing left for thinking beyond our current sermon series, beyond that Bible study you have to prepare all the kids' activities, is there? We know that we would like things to be different, but when you're exhausted, you can't drive it. Uh, The first rule of changing anything in leadership is you have to be alive, because dead leaders don't change stuff. 
and uh, change-resistant factors and change-resistant people are powerful and not always badly motivated either. And then the cold and hostile winds of culture blow, and the temptation is to circle the wagons, protect things just as they are, just as long as we can, and there seems to be every incentive not to change, not to make disciples, just to look after the Christians. Someone said to me recently, it's not as if in our church we actively don't want to make disciples. If you said to anybody here, do you not want to make disciples? The answer is obviously no, and yet we're unprepared to change anything that will actually make us serve the lost rather than Christians. Very interesting comment. I'd be very interested to know, if I got your average church member up here, would they be able to tell me your purpose? Our church exists to... How would they finish the sentence? Because the way they finish the sentence determines absolutely everything about what you are able to do and what you have the trust and credibility to do. You can never change anything in a church beyond what you have the trust and credibility to change. Would they say it's there to provide goodies for me and sanctified babysitting services? What would they say? I hope they would say it's here to help us be disciples who make disciples. That's what we're about as a church. We are a disciple-making team. If they can say that, it's probably because they're saying yes to it. They're in on it. You have their hearts. Jesus has walked along the beach and said to them, come, leave your nets, drop everything, leave your previous life, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of people. Or do they think that Jesus came along the beach and said to them, come, follow me, come and get involved in a church service on a Sunday and give some of your money? I wonder which they think it is. The thing is that if we are not clear about why we exist as disciple-making families on a mission, then the chief thing that you will get is a nice organisation for Christians after a while, if we don't have that kind of clarity. And what happens is we concretise ourselves in a certain generation, and then the world changes rapidly around us, and every year that goes past we get a year more out of touch with how to speak to the world about the world. So I want to help us to think in this session about the challenges to developing discipleship across church life. Every growing, rapidly growing church I know is looking to address the issue of how we get people living as disciple-making disciples in the world that really exists round about us now. If you were in the Bible reading with Scott earlier, you will have heard him say that love means being with people and being for people because you can't speak to people unless they know that you are with them and for them. How often have we assumed that we can make Christians uh, out of non-Christians by putting on stuff on Christian premises that Christians like, that we assume that non-Christians will like because of the quality of what we do? Folks, those times are passing. Maybe less so here in Northern Ireland than where I come from in London at the moment, but it'll come. Those times are passing. We can no longer make that assumption. I'm not actually sure we ever could. Anyway... We've been used to making Christians within the walls of churches, an environment where everybody came to church on a Sunday, and now they don't. And we're in the middle of a huge culture shift. We can no longer be inward-looking. We cannot do all our disciple-making in Christian safe zones. But of course, there are big challenges that go along with that. Uh, Turn to the couple of people next to you. Let's just get our uh, thoughts going for a couple of minutes with an opener. When asked what discipleship means and what disciples of Jesus do, what answers would you receive from your average church member? Talk to each other. When I say the word discipleship to folk who have been Christians for a while, 
I often find it generates one of two main responses. Either that means having a daily quiet time of meditating on the scriptures, hiding them in our hearts, possibly praying and worshipping as well, or trying to be personally morally good like Jesus. And both of those are great things. Neither are what the Bible means by discipleship. It is very rare for somebody to respond. That means following Jesus in doing what he commands, getting involved in what he is doing with all the other disciples in fulfillment of the Great Commission. That's very rare. Yeah, anybody remember what the very first thing Jesus did when he called them to him originally was? Well, first he sent them into a storm, and then he sent them out in twos to... Preach the good news. No. Nope. Make the sales. No. Cast out demons. Cast out demons and... Yeah. And... Raise the dead. Raise the dead. Um, anybody wants to come back to the supplementary seminar this afternoon? <laughs> should we do that? Should we do that? Very, very interesting. Immediately, just sends that. And yet, we think much more in terms of in-gathering. Come and sit, receive Sunday ministry, and get involved in pastoral care for yourselves, for which you give something of your time and money and effort. Something's a little topsy-turvy there, isn't it? I'm not going to give you a biblical theology of uh, leadership in these sessions. I hope we all have some sense of that. But let me just drop in a few of my assumptions about leadership uh, so you know where I'm coming from. I think there's a lot of material out there that is essentially uh, good, common grace wisdom from the secular world with a Christian gloss, but it's not especially biblical from its starting point. I'll give you just a few assumptions. So the Bible says a lot about leadership. It says, Romans 12, 8, it is a spiritual gift of governing and overseeing. There are plenty examples of good leaders and bad leaders. It tells churches how to be led and also how to honour and to respect leaders. Hebrews 13, 7 most notably. You don't have to go very far in the scriptures in search of leadership teaching. But to just highlight two things for you uh, that will hang over all three seminars for us. Uh, flick up in your, your Bible, please. Philippians 1, 25. First person there, read out 25 and 26 in a nice loud voice. Paul's in prison, thinks he's going to be released. Come to the Philippians. What does he want to do with them while he's with them? Someone? Philippians 1, 25 and 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. There you are. He wants to come to them and work with them for their progress and joy in the faith, their joy in God, so that as a result of what he does with them, they will glory abundantly in Jesus. Isn't that great? A great starting point to think about leadership. He doesn't just say it there, he says it in 2 Corinthians 1.24 as well. Uh, so it's not just in Philippi. I want your church glorying abundantly in Jesus. You know, elsewhere, it's uh, Peter says, doesn't he, to the scattered believers, you're undergoing painful, fiery trial, but you are full of joy, inexpressible and full of glory because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know him. You are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. I'll tell you, when a church is like that, you don't have to do very much evangelism training. They do it automatically. 
And similarly, when a church is not full of joy in God, you can do all the evangelism training you like. It doesn't make any difference because they don't want to do it. They're not excited about the Lord. And I'm really miserable, but I go to church on Sunday and I've got a ticket out of hell and you can come and be like me if you like. Isn't a particularly winsome invitation (laughs) with the gospel, is it? He wants to work with them for their progress and joy in God. And my second assumption is that leadership is disciple-making. So Ephesians 4, most notably, leadership ministries there are given to equip the saints for their ministries. And I take it that the ministries are there uh, for the church building itself up in love, doing its work properly. Doing its work properly, you most properly find defined in Matthew 28, don't you? Go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So leadership is disciple-making. Growing disciples who make disciples who fill the math, fulfill the Matthew 28 purpose of the church. <coughs> Leaders are given to equip the saints for their ministries. <laughs> Leaders are not given to do all their ministries. Mm-hmm. When the saints say, well, actually, we pay you to do all the ministry, then things go wrong pretty quickly. In our ministry with living leadership, we meet a lot of frazzled, burnt-out leaders because precisely that has happened. Now, we are working with them to release them so that they make progress and have joy in God so that they will grow as disciple-making disciples. The heart of biblical, spiritual leadership is all the believers spreading a passion for the glory of God and us facilitating them in it. The goal of leadership is growing mission-focused disciples and communities of mission-focused disciples. I often ask leaders to uh, complete this sentence, the goal of leadership is... And I'm happy when I get some version of working with others for their progress and joy in God, so they make disciples who glory abundantly in Jesus. I like to sum it up like this. Many churches think that church are like this. You've got sort of most people in my laser pointer, in this kind of category here, and you know, they attend, and maybe they give uh, a little bit of their time and their money, and you've got some enthusiastic folk who have been mature Christians for a bit, and wow, these folk are doing really well, aren't they? They're kind of, you know, nearly up there, but ministry, that's happening here with the elite few trained people, these folk aren't doing ministry for the gospel, are they? No, no, no. That's, that's these folk, and we should expect it to be a few, and it's not a biblical picture of a church. This is the biblical picture of a church. Ministry is happening all the way down there. And we have some folk who are set aside by the Lord as trainers and equippers and releasers of the ministry of all the saints. So, many of the growing churches in the country, I think, are resolving two key Issues. So the first one, how to make sure that all the disciples are being active and growing, discovering and exercising their ministry. And the second, and we'll talk about this on Wednesday, is how to identify, appoint, mentor and grow leaders prospectively to need. That is, before the need arises for them. How to, how to make sure that the next generation of leaders is coming through. Because if you wait until the need is pressing... Your existing leaders, us, we're already fried, aren't we? 
And if you are fried, running round, just keeping plates spinning, you have no time or ability to give yourself to, uh, to developing new leaders. That just doesn't happen. Exhausted leaders don't multiply ourselves. But we'll come on to that a little more tomorrow. But both of these things assume development, they assume change, they assume that church is never going to be a static thing, because they know that where they are right now is not where they must be in five years' time. If in five years' time they're exactly where they are now, they will in fact have gone backwards, because they will have the mindset of just trying to keep things precisely as they are. They won't be making new disciples, they will be resistant to it. And both of those things assume that the people who are doing the ministry of God are all the people of God, not just leaders. And that the particular ministry of leaders is to lead. Ideally, there should be no passengers. Everybody ought to know their fit with the purpose and direction of the church. Everybody starting to become aware of their ministry and fulfilling it, stepping into the centre of God's purposes for their lives. If you've got a situation where people think that leaders are there to do the ministry of everybody else and everybody else is there to passively consume services from religious professionals, then what you have is a chaplaincy, not a prophetic church. So, the question of intentionally discipling every member so they discover and fulfil their ministry. If we dedicate much of our resource and our capacity to that question... You get far more people down the arrow, and your arrow grows. If, on the other hand, you devote all your capacity just to running everybody's favourite activities, there's no guarantee you get mission-focused disciples. You don't reverse-engineer it like that. People will join because they like the activities, not because they like gospel vision. They will adopt a pastoral understanding of the church existing just for Christians, and leaders as a providers of Sunday ministry, not as equippers for mission. And let's face it, leaders collude in that very easily because it's a line of least resistance, isn't it? When people demand it of us, mm. we kind of want to do it because we got trained to do that. Mm. It's hard to change that. So why so many people who are interested in, para, in evangelism end up in parachurch ministries and not in the church. Let's open the Bible again. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, if you would. This is, I think, the best verse on uh, disciple-making leadership. This is how Paul discipled Timothy. It's what he did with him, what he taught him, what he showed him how to do, and how he did it. So would uh, somebody please uh, read for us, nice loud voice, 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 and 11. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life. My purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, that the Lord rescued me from all of them. Thank you very much. This is a verse for us as leaders to write down and pin on the fringe. Let me just tease apart the elements very quickly for us. So he says, you know all about my teaching, he's taught him, he's passed on the good deposit of the gospel, true doctrine, right understanding, firm foundations for everything else, 
absolutely critical, isn't it? There is no leadership in biblical churches apart from that. But it's very easy to let it go at that. I'm a Bible teaching leader. If I just spent all my time teaching the Bible and just laying that foundation, then I could happily consume all my time doing that and never build anything on top of the foundation. But Paul does. He goes on. He says, you know about my way of life. He's let Timothy get close enough. He's given him a big slice of his life. He's been able to see and experience the difference, the transformational, foundational difference that the gospel teaching makes. Elsewhere, he says in 1 Thessalonians, doesn't he? We shared not just the gospel, but our lives with you. A little while ago, um, uh, somebody in our church came to me and said, um, uh, as a new believer in our church, can I read Colossians with him? You don't need my permission to read Colossians with him, but do you mean, do you want to disciple him? And he said, what's that? So I said, well, you've got a very demanding job where you're trying to figure out in Parliament uh, how to be a believer with integrity. Why don't you show him how you do that? Um, you've got a young family and you're trying to juggle that, bringing up your two boys in the ways and truths of the Lord. Show, show him how you do that. And uh, yeah, read Colossians. He went white. He said, I'll have to change some stuff in my life if you want him to actually see my life. Oh, that's really very interesting. Mm. Uh, there is no divide here that lets us get away with just sharing the message and not sharing our lives. Remember this morning, love is being with and being for. Paul is living out the message. That was what Timothy was invited into, not just knowing it. Look what he says next. He says, you know about my purpose. That is what I'm trying to accomplish, what my goals are. He's passed those on to Timothy as well. Get your average church member up here say, define for us our purpose. What are we trying to accomplish in the next five years? What will they say? I wonder if you've got some clarity on that. I hope so. If not, that's probably a chief take-home from this morning for you. Paul says, you know about my faith. Shown Timothy how he's growing in the faith, how he's living out his faith. Interestingly, he says to Timothy um, elsewhere, let others see your progress. That means two things. Firstly, Timothy still has progress to make. And secondly, leaders are not the finished article, and people are meant to be able to see how we are growing so that they can see how to grow. Mm -hmm. If you put on a mask and pretend that you're perfect, then don't expect anybody else in the church to know how to be a repenter or how to take some next steps with the Lord. Uh, that won't happen. Very often I think we live in quite a superficial environment where leaders are so frightened of being seen to, to fail or fall or not get it right and be the focus for every piece of criticism that we're reluctant to let people see our progress. If you get ambushed by that, that's a good thing to, to pray into with friends. One of the reasons that people don't raise up new leaders is fear of risk, fear of failure, what if they get it wrong and I carry the can for it uh, with a congregation that says, well, we pay you to do it and you shouldn't have let new leaders have a go. It's a very big reason for not raising up new leaders. If you uh, find that debilitating, then uh, you need to review your patterns of life and ministry because you've been ambushed by demands that are leading you into fear. Look how he goes on. You know about my patience and my love. 
how I deal with people gently, how I handle it when not everything I'm praying about comes to pass, how I continue to love people who drive me nuts. And then he says, you know about my endurance and persecutions and sufferings and the stuff that happened in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra. He's taken him with him. He's taught him for sure, but he's taken him with him. He has apprenticed him. He has immersed him in what he's doing. Risky. Maybe there were times when Timothy mucked up. John Mark certainly did, didn't he? <coughs> Never forget an apprentice I had uh, uh, doing student ministry in London. Uh, came with me for his very, very first ministry experience. And uh, uh, we were in a bar at University College London. The Christian Union had booked it out for an apologetic event that I was meant to be speaking at. They really had booked it out. They had permission to use it. They just hadn't told anybody that it wasn't just an ordinary bar night. So um, it was full of non-Christians drinking in a rowdy fashion. Really full, actually. And uh, I got there and said, so what do you want me to do? They said, can't you climb on the bar and preach a bit? In for a penny, in for a pound. Uh, They threw bottles at me. And um, I learned to duck and dive and weave a bit that night. And I got down... uh, off the bar with this new, brand new apprentice, his very first experience of ministry standing there. And he looked at me and he said, is it always like that? <laughs> I said, no, not always. He said, um, is it my turn now? I said, do you want to? Said, yeah, obviously. Uh, it's no surprise that that guy's a good leader <laughs> today because he had the chance to be with and to do. So if I want to sum up 2 Timothy 3, 10 and 11, really in three ideas in my mind, they are that Paul taught him, he apprenticed him, and he immersed him in what he's doing. I was chatting uh, a couple of years ago to an evangelist at a conference, and he said, I think I'm doing very good orthodox evangelism, but if I'm honest... 80% plus of the people who become Christians in one year's time, the only difference in their life will be they've bolted on going to church on Sunday onto an otherwise unchanged life. And I asked him why. Why do you think that was? He said, well, I think that we've invited people into all the benefits of Jesus' death, received by faith, utterly of grace. You can't do anything to deserve it but repent and believe. And we omit to tell them at that point that if they become a Christian, they are also invited into Jesus' life. He's going to come and live in them. And they're invited into his purposes. They are going to transform their lives to put Jesus and what he wants to accomplish at the centre and revolve everything else now round about that. But I don't think I'm telling them that they're going to have to develop a Jesus-oriented lifestyle now. So Jesus is a bit of a bolt-on extra. I'm not telling them at the point of evangelism that he will give them spiritual gifts for witnessing and serving, that he will include them in a disciple-making team and give them the great adventure of working with him if they become a Christian. We should be doing that at the point of evangelism. Otherwise, in a year's time, what you have got is not a disciple, but a consumer. So he'd given people the systematic teaching. They knew the gospel. But he'd only give them half the story. That they were actually now being called to come and be with Jesus and do what Jesus is doing. Come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of people. 
I said, now, why aren't you telling them that? He said, what if I tell them all that, and then they go and get involved in a church where that's just not true? There will be a disconnect between the message that they think they've received and the church life that they then experience. So what he did was he tailored his evangelistic message to a sub-biblical view of church. That was really interesting. What it tells me, I think, is this. The point at which we do evangelism and the point of entry into your church, very critical points for telling people and getting them to understand exactly what they are getting into. When people come and join your church, what are they expecting to join? Are they expecting to participate in one of Jesus' disciple-making teams? Or are they expecting to come and join a set of passive meetings? That determines whether you're going to get partners or passengers in the great cause of witnessing, worshipping, making of disciples. Here's, um, here's a little list for us. I've got Nick this off Mike Breen at 3DM Ministries. I quite like it. He says it's very good to give some very practical categories to what we mean by learning to be a disciple. And here's their eight. This is from a resource called Life Shapes. I recommend it to you. So he talks about being lifelong learners of Jesus. This is all the things they want to teach people when they uh, become Christians. Being lifelong learners of Jesus. That means asking... Uh, What is God telling me from the scriptures and what am I going to do about it? We want to teach people to pray. Hands up in the room, in your church, how many of you have at least one class for new believers on how to pray? Isn't that interesting? If you just become a Christian from a non-Christian background, praying's weird. Because you can't see the person you're talking to. He says we talk uh, to them about how to have relationships of depth and they have a a little triangle they use up to the Lord, inward believers, out to the world. Or probably better, being sent by the Lord in fellowship to the world. We teach them how to develop discipleship-oriented rhythms of life, how to take that blank sheet of paper, put Jesus in the middle of it, and now revolve everything around him. We teach them how to get involved in multiplying disciples, discovering their ministry, participating and contributing to their spiritual family and how to get involved in mission from the word go as a basic definition of how to start to grow as a disciple. Now, I'd like for us to get back into groups and have a little conversation with each other. What I'd like you to do is this. I'd like you to ask, how much of your church's resource capacity do you put to these things? So you might want to just go down the list as leaders, as a church, where do you put your time, energy and resources on this list? We could use other lists, but this is a concise one. So, what resource capacity do you dedicate to each area? You might want to give it a number. High level, moderate level, basic or none. High, moderate, basic or none. And... Do we in our church have a clear vision of how we develop people in each area? Yes, no, kind of. Do you understand uh, understand the exercise here? Uh, So there we are. What are the main areas where you have little or no capacity? Would be interesting. We'll come back to those in a minute. What does it reveal about your current structures for delivering discipleship growth? And where you need to put resources in the future? But have a little look at the list. 
Where do you put your resource capacity? What are the areas that you have nothing in? Do you have a clear vision for developing people in each area? Talk to each other. We'll spend a good ten minutes at it. See what it throws up. Okay, man. Over to you guys. <laughs> Those are actually very challenging. I don't know. Um, do you learn try hard? Or do you learn anything by the parapet or something? I think I probably learned to play more from the parapet. Yeah. I'm not saying there's not a place for it. I'm not going to say that it's an Oh yes, no, yes, no, yes, yes, yes. No, I wasn't meaning that so much as you know. You take somebody like Sam, for instance. You knew when you heard Sam play that he didn't know about what he was going. And so, actually, I mean, one of the things about calling press play, I used to love the play, was their I used to love his portrait and his hands and figure. And so he just brought me right on the table. I just felt so much fun. And it was approach to the Lord. And for and for others. But we, yeah, and it's the same as if you were prepared. Yeah, for it's predictable, you know, people go to the other side. What you're can be inspirational, but the question is, do we train yes. them? Yes. Yeah. 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 We will put them in the environment where they learn things, but Every prayer meeting I do, I basically have that really as a teaching session on prayer. Where this is how you pray the Bible. The last few readings of Sweden, this is actually the night. People don't come, you know. I mean, and I've done, I've probably done three or four series on prayer as well. But there's not a heart for prayer. Do you know what I mean? There's not a heart for prayer of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, I think you step back and it is. Really genuine believers who are just kind of born again, and the spirit of the guys want relationship with God. We do a bit of But that's where I think the, the infection thing of when you do hear someone and you have a concern, because if you have a desire, then part of this is that we as leaders need to be providing opportunity for people, but as you say, people need to be, to be taken up. But I think as well, in the middle of all of our basement churches, Christian in your church leaders, even the elders, for many, many years, they don't pray, either at prayer meetings or with it goes away back to what our churches are and what our churches have become. And this is the big problem. I agree totally with Eric you said, Marcus. If we have a longing for this, I think that's a longing for it. Your, 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 your church is so far back. 
how do you get to the starting line? In terms of a desire for this, yeah. if you're the only one, you know, there's maybe one or two others. Um, you might want to ask that question in a minute. I have a few thoughts for you. This is great. Anna. We're not working down through all these in any systematic way. I hope that's all right. I'm just kind of picking out the ones, or certainly ones that I think are the most challenging. No, I'm just enjoying listening to yeah, stuff about your context because I don't understand it and I don't know your context. Yeah. So, just pretend I'm not here. Well, we're all pretty involved in leadership within the Presbyterian You've heard us talking about the Presbyterian Church and you're familiar enough with it. There's much that's good about it, but there's much that needs rather good change. I was going to say, do you think our people of the vision have discovered their personal calling? I don't think our people of the vision have become disciples in the world. You know, it is just, I mean, you started at the very start, it is going to church. Given um, the challenges. The bigger vision of the kingdom, you know, it's just church has been reduced to something so small. And this is, I, I, if you're on your own, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's what I was saying. It's easier when you're part of the team, you're a good staff. We changed. Marcus, you have to see it very well. Churches have to. And uh, we got changed. And I think we did all of that. So, the challenge is how we get from here to the starting line. Yes. Yeah. There is a. Somebody put it to me last year a cognitive dissonance. I know that's where I want to be. I know that's where I am. I just don't know what the steps are in, yeah. in between. Yeah. Well, is it that we, you know, one of the things, for instance, we changed our vision statement in the last year or two, that we now have a much more discipleship based one, you know, to become committed followers um, to the Lord Jesus Christ? Very, you know, that's. Mine, that's, is, that mine, is, mine be, is that as well on paper. That can be very glib. Well, but at least then you have something to keep challenging your, your members about, including your elders. We, um, we, 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 we came up with almost exactly that four years ago, and even something as short as that. We realised nobody in our church could remember. And it took us, believe it or not, six months to hone it down to helping people follow Jesus, <laughs> which we then plastered everything. You cannot get round our church so building into our church yeah, building without it. But now, ask anybody in our congregation what this church is about, and that's the least you will get. So it is at least starting and, and it is discipleship, following Jesus. It's got an active verb. Yeah. 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 Because we did that, as I was saying to you, that we, we actually started by calling our small groups laser groups, but then the entire church took it on board because that was love, learn, serve, reach. And I think, I think that that is quite a good picture of what we as disciples should be about. Do the groups do it? Well, some do it very successfully. Some do it. One group, sadly, opted, one led by an elder too, which I was quite cross about, decided that they didn't want to be part of the laser vision. But that's one group, and when did we relaunch it? 19 years, uh, 99, so many years ago, is that 17? So one group has opted out in 19. Now, now, I would love to tell you that all 34 groups are doing it very strongly, they're not, but at least there's the expectation 
and they can, you know, I would, I would challenge all of them particularly. The loving and learning come a bit easier. Do you uh, reorganise and reach those groups? Not as often as I would like. Some of them do. Some of them, I mean, there's a whole, they're meant to, like, bud new groups. Some do it very, very well. Some do not. And some, some become rather mediocre friendship groups doing first-line pastoral care with a Bible study, but not oriented to vision. Well... Yeah, yeah that, that's probably true, but actually one of the ones that's four couples, they they have stayed quite, you know, looking at them from the outside, they look a very static group, but actually not, because they have, they have done more outreach, you know, they, they've gone for like for a weekend to Cork, or they've gone, they're actually, they're now doing it, going to missionaries in Spain for, for a few days, um, because they're, they're all sort of in their round 60 mark with the families are up and either don't have parents or whatever you know so even though that looks a very static group actually they're ones with the greatest vision for reaching out and probably done more and, and they've got a good one the, the guy who leads them is continually you know just keeping at them out so I would where I might have said before right I mean I know there's some groups some churches close all their groups and read. We have done that in the past. Um, because there is that tension between people being comfortable enough to enjoy it, but not becoming. Once the group becomes too inward looking. It's to do with all people think they have joined and for why. The abduction point's absolutely critical. But the older I get, the more I want to say to churches, more induction points are just critical. Being able to evaluate against them is... Yeah, because you can't go back after the event. What was that little phrase you used? Why did you use again? Helping people follow Jesus. More brilliant words, yeah. I was chatting to the head of the Chinese church in London a little while ago. He said, not because I bet our small groups are different to yours. I said, how so? He said, I bet ours work at yours don't. And I said, oh, God, tell me. He said, well, ours you actively have to graduate from. We put in a five-year graduation point. We do them from naught to five years of the Christian life, five to ten, and, and, and onwards. And we're expecting by the time you get to five years that you will be able to lead groups of new believers. And we have five things that hang over all of them. We are praying in every group, every week, Lord, will you change me, train me, empower me, use me, multiply me. He said, so it is highly purposeful. There is a graduation point. There is an evaluation point. If somebody is not Hebrews 5 growing from milk to meat, we sit down and try to explain why not. Now, admittedly, they have a Chinese rope learning culture, which is very different, I think, to ours. But they were. And he said, you should know that because you have run university small groups for years and years and years and are a hothouse for growth precisely because there was a graduation point. So they did not continue and then just drift off into mediocre friendship groups that were challenging 30 years ago but aren't anymore. That was very, very interesting. Change me, train me, empower me, use me, train me, train me, empower me, use me, and multiply me. And he said, as soon as we've got people in every group every week praying the first one, change me. 
the rest becomes easier. Yeah. Because the rest flows out of that. Exactly. It does reach you. Exactly. Wow. I like those. Folks, we'll take some we'll take some feedback. What are your reflections uh, on this? So there are some uh, things to just form our reflections around. What are some of the areas where you find you've got little or no capacity? Do you find it revealing anything about your current structures for delivering discipleship growth? And anything that it reveals to you about future structure and resource needs for this great task of growing disciple-making disciples? Who would like to kick us off with any reflections? I think there is sometimes, and I don't want to generalise because you don't really know who else kind of in the room, but there's a danger at times that there is a, you know, there's a lot of focus on relationships at an end level, that we kind of see church as the club, yep. the in crowd, we get on with everybody else, but then, you know, if you actually got into depth and asked people, well, why are you here? Hmm. Well, I'm here to worship God. What does that? What do you? What do you mean by that? Because if you can't sort some of those things out at the heart of people's lives, then you can't in any way start to invest time in, for example, the out. Yes. So your your, your triangle is lopsided. Yeah. In that regard, and it indicates something relationally, probably something positive. People actually have found some meaningful relationships. Uh, that's a very good thing. But they're finding them in the security of an internal dynamic with Christians. It might reveal that your church has lost all its evangelists, or your evangelists are doing their thing in isolation rather than seeing themselves as equippers and facilitators of the rest of the body. But for some reason, you've been emphasizing the the in and possibly the up, but not the out. There may be an observation there that you want to take away and think about it. The, the, the one thing I just want to say about that, which I, I don't want to digress into a bigger conversation, but the, the whole thing of this in discipleship, and even looking at those life shapes and deciding sort of where, where our focus and our capacity is, if, if, if actually there needs to be more of a focus on evangelism mm-hmm. inside your, your existing church body, before you invest in some of these things, then... Well, that, that's where I think, in church context that I'm in, uh-huh. that, that we are at. So you would identify that you have a very mixed congregation in front of you of Christian and non-Christian, uh, and it's impossible to get the latter participating in Jesus' great disciple-making cause because they haven't become disciples yet. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, very, very good at, at, at doing, doing church. Yeah. But you are blessed because you have plenty of folk there to speak to. <laughs> Who need to be transformed by the gospel. And they're there. Hallelujah. Just realise what you're speaking to. Thank you. Anybody else? So oh, you're all talking so well just now. <laughs> I just want to share on the um, um, teaching aspect. I think maybe most of the churches that there is a lot of teaching that goes on. But... There's teaching at the, would we say, on church level as regards a Sunday, good morning, and evening. You then break it down to the smaller groups midweek. But then you break it down to the, the individual level. And it almost like slows down a bit. Um, and we focus on, we say that the Bible is the word of God. And yet, when you ask, even within the small, within the small groups, <coughs> You know, how's your, or what 
um, reading plan have you got going, or how you go through it, what's God sent you today or in the past week, um, or even the feedback going all the way up from the personal through to the small group through to the the, the, the whole church, yep. you know. Um, there's a bit of a disconnect, and even just to share, uh, I was speaking one time to my um, minister, and you would think nowadays that ministers would be bombarded with questions coming through by email or whatever. And surprisingly, he said, Paul, I get very few emails, very few questions coming through about and, and if I can sit here and say, well, does my church know about my quiet time? What God's speaking to me? And if they don't, what does that say as regards a body and a teaching? Yeah. So there's something there about transparency. Mm-hmm. There's also something about a culture where we have stopped asking applicatory questions. So questions like, what's God doing in your life at the moment? Or to be normal, common currency among us. I think maybe we're fearful of the answer, I don't know. But the answer, I don't know, is fine, because that gives us something to pray about. Mm-hmm. Um, questions like, the thing we were looking at in our small group last week, has it been living it out over this last week, folks? It's the question we should ask at the start of every single meeting. Questions like, if what we just learned from the scriptures was explosively true in our lives, what difference would it make? Questions like, if this gospel is really true, how would our town know that it's being impacted by the gospel of the grace of God in Christ? seems to me that these are the kinds of questions we're not so good at asking. But they do, if you ask them regularly enough, change a culture where people start to realize it's okay to ask and answer and pray into them. But uh, it's so easy, isn't it, to leave it at the theological and the mm-hmm. theoretical and the unapplied because we don't have the kind of depth of community. In fact, what we do is we substitute community for meetings very often and, uh, and a degree of superficiality because what we don't have is a sense of team together accomplishing something. But I think that changing that can be as simple as changing the narrative by changing the questions that we ask over a long period. Remember a small group I participated, best small group I've ever been in, Guy wasn't great at leading Bible studies, but he was a very good disciple. He said, we're going to apply and pray in the Sunday teaching every week into each other's lives and ask the question every week, what's God doing in your life? I don't mind silence. That's all he got for six weeks. And the floodgates opened. Mm-hmm. And then a new believer, so we were talking about forgiveness, said, said to him, was there ever a relationship in which you didn't forgive that rankled? And he said, actually, there was one and described it. She said, I'm now a Christian. I've been reading the Bible a bit. Does that mean as your Christian friends we should make you ring that person up and put it right? Mm. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. the spiritual temperature mm-hmm. in the room went right up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he went red and flapped. We came back the following week and she said, oh, just before we start, how did that phone call go? He hadn't mm. done it. She said, no, I read the Bible. That's wrong. Oh, my goodness. And after three weeks of um, cajoling, he did it. And it went very well. And she said, so the gospel's true then, isn't it? But it was the point of application and transformation and change mm-hmm. and doing it. Persistence. And persistence that, uh, that was the thing. I think we're a little unwilling to press through the persistence. Maybe some of you folk less than me, because I'm Brit. We get embarrassed really. I'm English. Sorry, you're all, we're all Brits. I'm English. We get embarrassed really, really easily of this stuff. But pressing through with those kinds of questions should be very normal among us.
Anybody else? Any reflections on this? Our time is going to wrap up shortly. That's five pounds to the New Horizon missions. <laughs> Unless it was an alarm telling me that I've gone on too long. <laughs> Are we all very um, self-sufficient these days with Praise God. You saw a major mm-hmm. distraction and you got rid of it. Well done you. Yeah. Some of the rest of us in this room need to hear that. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. I think just on, on the back of that, there is that sense possibly in, in some of our community churches that of that sense of, well, what, what do we need? Do we, do we, you know, we live in a world that seems to be able to provide everything right away and, and instantaneous and whatever, and, and yet the things that we really need um, don't get the time. And so how do we emphasize at the disciple-making level for each person that's in our, in our pews every week about you know, how to kind of stop and rearrange back to the things that are really going to shape us? Indeed. Shall I tell you in one sentence what is the single biggest need of everybody? Knowing God better. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. Knowing God better. And every age has its distractions and its idols and its stuff that says, worship me instead. We become like what we spend our time with. We become like what we gaze at. That's 2 Corinthians 3, isn't it? We gaze on the Lord with the eyes of our hearts. We're transformed from one degree of glory to another with ever-increasing glory by the Holy Spirit. We become like what we worship and the world's just putting some different things to worship in front of us right now. All of which says, know the world better, not know the Lord better. Friends, our, our time is up. Let me, let me conclude for us. Unless we're persuaded that church is a disciple-making community, then you're always going to make disciple-making one thing among many, rather than the paradigm that governs everything else. And therefore you are always going to be reluctant to stop other things in order to prioritise it. Deliberate setting goals with people, uh, taking them the next step, giving a vision of what is possible in the Lord if they walk by faith is a thing that stops them treading water in the life of discipleship. It enables them to take steps they can't otherwise take, but it never happens unintentionally and it always happens because leaders take the lead in it. Always. If you grow disciples who have a clear view and commitment to their own growth and their own ministry for the Lord... What you get is biblical church and biblical mission. If you set about growing activities and running structures, there is absolutely no guarantee that it works the other way around. Because people will join because of the bars and activities, not because of their commitment to a team on Jesus' great mission. And so what you do is you substitute disciple-making for organisation-making, and it's easier. And you substitute activities for mission and for mission-focused disciples. And then churches move into maintenance mode when they're good and full and buzzing. 
and people decide that they want leaders not for building a bridge to the future, but to organise and deliver the thing they've got now. And we colluding it so easily. What percentage of your area do you think have a connection with a Bible-believing church? Even here, I'd be surprised if that's much more than 5% these days. Maybe 7, 8, 9%, 5%, I reckon. In our day, we've just got used to putting on good events and hoping non-Christians will like them. And we're going to have to move away from invitation to events and activities and an offer to join Jesus' community of disciples on a mission if we want to break through to the next level. I reiterate what I said before. That means the point of evangelism and the point of induction into our churches is utterly critical for vision and purpose. It means giving all the disciples a vision for growing in God and finding their ministry at that point. Two minutes more. What percentage of main leadership time in a church do you think ought to be ring-fenced for training, equipping and releasing others? 100. 100. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) What what percentage of time in your church is given to? I'll tell you this for an absolute fact. The higher percentage that is given to training and releasing and developing new leaders the more likely your church is to make disciples who make disciples. Mm. The fastest growing church I I know have always protected 70% of their main leaders and staff team's time for that purpose. That's very, very hard to go from being a chaplaincy to that. But Mm -hmm. if you start off with 20%, that means you're going to have to ditch some other stuff you do. And it doesn't matter if you're a very junior leader, you can still take a Timothy with you. Some of you are in your first experience of leadership, I guess, in youth groups and other things, maybe home groups or small groups, Sunday school. You can still find find somebody to take on with you. That's, That's no barrier. We're all on a learning curve together. But release some of your time and ring fence it for that. Taking new leaders with you is something only you can drive. People with leaders, leadership gifts are the only ones in the church who can do it. Friends, we're we're done. What we're seeking uh, to do in our churches, surely, is get the DNA to the point that when we cut people, they bleed grace, truth, mission, and discipleship. The DNA's got to change. We want that right at the core of them. And as we do, by God's grace, may we change the mindset of people who understand church as the place they go to escape the world, to be a client receiving the services of religious professionals to an understanding of church as their community for participating in and being equipped to live for the purposes of God in the world in which they live. Can I ask you to take 30 seconds to just write down what is the chief take-home from this session for me that I need to pray about and put into action? What's the chief take-home from this session for me to pray about and put into action? And I'll pray. Father, uh, some of us are sitting here now thinking, uh, I recognise the validity of a lot of this, I see it in the scriptures, but my church is a long way from this and I don't know how to get from one to the other. I pray for wisdom. Uh, Lord, uh, your word says that those who need wisdom should ask, you give it abundantly. And we want to be leaders who are wise. 
uh, to the signs of the times. Mm-hmm. Lord, uh, like the men of Issachar who were wise about the signs of the times and knew what Israel should mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Would you make us like that, please? Mm-hmm. Lord, would you help us to know how to take folk in our churches who have joined for reasons other than being involved with Jesus in his great disciple-making cause and help them to start to walk into the purposes of God, the centre of your will for their lives. And Lord, where we find all our time is drained away doing other things so that we simply haven't got the ability to even think about mm-hmm. it. Lord, maybe we're even so tired yeah. that we've lost our, our own first love mm-hmm. and our worship and prayer life is, yeah. is burning dim. Would you come to us and help us and be with us and reignite us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lord, as we encourage one another in these things through the week, would you just raise up in our minds the things that you want to put in each and every one of our situations for the good of your church? and our spiritual health as leaders. We ask it for the glory of Jesus and for the spread of the gospel of the kingdom over all the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.